you think about yourself too seriously, I think it limits your ability to imagine. That's the voice of Iran Eden, co-founder and CEO of MeMed, headquartered in Haifa, Israel. Listen in now to hear my conversation with Iran, his thoughts on leadership, and how MeMed is working to translate signals from the immune system into diagnostic insights to treat infectious disease and inflammatory disorders. I'm John Simboli. You're listening to BioBoss. Today I'm speaking with Iran Eden, co-founder and CEO of MeMed Diagnostics. Welcome to BioBoss, Aaron. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. How did you find yourself as co-founder and CEO at MeMed? Well, it actually started as a, as a game. Uh, I was doing my PhD and I met uh, my partner in crime, uh, our other co-founder and CTO, Dr. Kfir Oved. At that time, he was not a doctor. And we were playing around, uh, trying to combine and synthesize different ideas in science. I came from a background of molecular biology and computer science at the Weizmann Institute. And he was a medical doctor, or at least trained to be a medical doctor and a PhD. And so we said, well, how can we combine our worlds into something that would be meaningful? And that was the idea of trying to do something together was, I would say, the first step towards having a company. At that point, no CEO, no co-founder. It was just, let's do something together. So that moment when you maybe independently or together said, wait a minute, there's something going on here. Uh, was that was that like an aha, like, hmm, or is that like a, yeah, this is a natural progression? So we were working actually for quite some time on a projects around cancer immunotherapy for a few years, had some academic merit coming out of that. And at that time, I was living in Tel Aviv and he was living in Haifa. And I guess we both have different motivations, right? So we're doing quite well academically. I can tell you about my motivation. So publishing really nicely and was going for a career in academia. But then there was a gap. There was a gap between the, I would say, impact that some of the work that I was jointly doing with my colleagues from academic perspective and the ability to actually impact real people in the real world or real patients. So we said, we teamed up and we said, well, well what if, what if we play this game called let's build a company? We're probably going to fail 99.9%, .9%, but heck, we're going to enjoy the ride. And so that was the, I would say that was, it was a moment. But the point where we actually got to what the company is going to do, that was much more of a continuum, almost a year of trying and testing different, very, I would say, bad ideas or imaginary, trying to solve imaginary problems until we came up with the end point that, that Mimit was based upon. So it was a, both a single point, but also a continuum. Was it clear when you came to the, that end point that you were at that end point, or was it a difficult thing? Sometimes it can be hard to say, yeah, we're done choosing. This is where we want to go. I think when we got to it, and I'll tell you in a second how we actually got to that. Yeah, it was clear that that's something that we want to start and probably fail, but it's something worth starting. The point getting there was filled with, as I said, many micro uh, failures of trying to branch up with different ideas that turned out, again, to be either bad ideas or imaginary, trying to solve imaginary problems. The point where we got to the, to the idea was actually, was a day that Fear came from med school where we heard this lecture and he came up with some very concrete topic, which I'll tell you about in a second. And then we said, let's go for it. So, so that was a pivotal moment that we said, let's start from here. 
as you and he came to the clarity of what this might be, did it go through your minds, you know, I'll take this to some big place, some big pharma, some big med tech, some something, and that structure will already be in place. I won't have to go through all the heartache of lifting it off the ground and getting airspeed. <laughs> did, did, I'm sure you at least asked yourself that question. I think we were quite naive uh, when we started. Uh, we had, we didn't even understand the fraction of what it takes to build a full-fledged company. Today, we're going to look at this in hindsight, eight years. You know, I think we're still coming every day to work and sometimes find it hard to believe how far we've gone and you know what what it, what has happened when we started this it was just again there was no big presumptions let's just start and, and let's see what happens how this develops and i think this helped us not taking ourselves too seriously and really have the courage to try to do something as insane as what i'm about to tell you well yeah, you've definitely piqued my interest please walk me through that uh, how you chose you know that moment you were just talking about Okay, so let's start first of all with the realm, the neighborhood. So the neighborhood of what we wanted to do, we wanted to do host response. What does that mean? It means we're basically using the signals of your body, the molecules, the molecular biochemical signals of your body, together with different sensors and algorithms to try to answer questions that do not have an answer in 21st century medicine. Now that sounds like something very bombastic. And let's reduce that to practice. So went with a lot of questions um, that, as I said, turned out to be not that interesting. But then the question or the first question we went after is something that, again, Kfir came from back from med school, and it's trying to tackle the following seemingly simple problem. So you go to the doc with your child, and they're sick and they have a fever. I have three of these little buggers back home, and you mostly feel sorry for yourself because you have to go to work after not sleeping at night, they don't go to the kindergarten. And often the clinical question comes down to, well, it is a bacterial or a viral infection. If it's a bacterial infection, you need to treat with antibiotics. If it's a viral infection, basically sent home with chicken soup. And the problem is that we usually don't know because bacterial and viral infections are often clinically indistinguishable. Now I say seemingly simple problem because this uncertainty gives rise to several issues including antibiotics overuse and consequently the rise of resistance strains of the bacteria which is arguably the biggest healthcare challenge challenge of our time well second right now to covid obviously but uh, so that's when we had this aha moment and, and by the way it's not only children it's also adults it's also you and me or our parents this issue of distinguishing between bacterial and viral infection to treat or not to treat is something very fundamental in medicine the perfectly intelligent adult you were meeting perhaps through your family who you haven't known before, who, you know, the whole, well, what do you do for a living? At least here in New York area, that's all you ever hear. And uh, so you don't want to, I'm sure, say, well, I'm a CEO. How do you answer that when people say, how do, what do you do for a living? What I say is that I'm part of a company that tries to solve real, big, ugly medical problems that don't have an answer in 21st century medicine that the first problem we went after is the one that I just told you about, trying to determine whether a patient has a bacterial or viral infection to treat or not to treat. And in the process, the team here, we've created these transformative technologies that can actually help you tackle this problem. And I'll tell you in a second how we've done that. 
But now that we're about seven, eight years into the journey, we can use this platform technology to go, af- to go after other very meaningful problems. So that, that's what we're doing. We're trying to tackle, we're trying to use your host in your response to try to tackle big problems. That's the essence. How we do that, that's technical stuff. And look, we're all geeks. We love it, right? We love the science. We love the biochemistry. We love the algorithms. But it's not about that. It was always about the problem and then finding all the ways to try to solve that problem. So uh, we define ourselves via the problem rather than via the solution or via the technology. Did you, at some point, you know, in your transformation from being in school to thinking about your academic work, did you ever, prior to taking on this this game that you described for me and ending up building this company, did you ever think to yourself, you know, I think how I really want to be as a CEO? No, actually, no. This was this was not on the agenda. Uh, the agenda was going to science. I was enjoying science tremendously. Uh, had a very well thought through plan how to go through an academic career. This just started as a game. And, and again, I think it, it, it's a good thing because if you think about yourself too, too seriously, I think it limits your ability to imagine. Uh, thinking about everything that you need to do to create a disruptive technology that reads the host in your response in order to tackle big clinical dilemmas, you're probably going to fail. So if you start thinking about yourself in too serious terms, it, it at least for me, it would paralyze. But by saying, look, I want to be a scientist, and, but I have some spare time, so let's start a game. And guess what? Maybe some good things are going to happen along the way. That allowed us to grow. Now, obviously, today, things are much more serious. You know, We've raised a significant amount of capital. We're backed by the U.S. Department of Defense, the European Commission, what have you, collaborators around the globe. But it takes time. And we had that time to grow into the, into the role, and it didn't just happen in one day. None of us, by the way, everybody here on the team, I think all of us are doing today things that we did not think that we would do three years ago. And three years ago, we did not think that we were going to do these things. So every three years, we basically reinvented ourselves. Can you remember when you were a kid, maybe formative years of, I don't know, um, let's say eight, nine, 10, something like that, that self-image you may have had of yourself, perhaps through family or from watching TV or God knows where people get their self-image at that age. But can you remember how you pictured yourself as a grown-up? Yes. Um, I love to play computer games. And so I thought I'm going to design and um, create computer games, graphics, what have you. Uh, I'm very, very far from that, for sure. This is not where I thought I'm going to end. Uh, Life is basically taken a very, very different course. Uh, sometimes I get to do a little bit of the graphics and the PowerPoint when marketing here allows me, uh, as long as I don't spoil it too much. But that's probably as close as it gets. The playing part did remain, but not, not in terms of playing uh, computer games. What have you learned over the years? So over the years is, I believe, seven or eight years with MeMed. What have you learned over the years about what's your management style, what works for you? Uh, a colleague or a friend gave me this book. Um, called Effective uh, Executive or Manager by Peter Drucker, the, uh, one of the fathers of uh, management theory. And, and I thought, look, I'm going to learn how to become a manager. Great. And I opened the book, and one of the first things he says there, well, if you want to learn how to manage, first and foremost, you have to learn how to manage yourself. And that was interesting. About 80% of the book was, was about how to manage yourself. So that's probably one of the most important things I can think about when talking about management styles. First of all, knowing how to manage yourself, being disciplined about your time. Your time is the most precious 
resource you have. So how do you allocate it wisely? Then when it comes to others, I think an important thing that I've learned is be authentic about what you know. Be also very authentic about what you don't know. And and especially if you go on in such uncharted territories, things that are on the borderline of you know what's known and what's unknown in science, you're bound not to know everything. And when you're an entrepreneur, you're definitely you don't know everything. And if you're in such a multidisciplinary team, definitely or in multidisciplinary environment, you don't know you don't know everything. So being candid about this, that has been. I think very, very effective because it allows others to help you. I remember in one of my early board meetings, we we brought on board a hotshot professional board member, uh, industry veteran as part of the representatives of the co-founders, and and in the board meeting they're asking they're asking me a question, and I said, well, I don't know. But we'll figure it out until the next board. And after the board meeting, he was capturing me. He was catching me and telling me, "Whoa, I've not been in too many situations where the CEO in the board meeting says I don't know." And I'm telling, him, "Well, but that's the truth. I mean, I can fake it, but what does what does that mean? I'm not saying I don't know, and I'm never going to know. I'm saying I don't know, and we're going to figure it out. And that that gives you this flexibility again to learn fast, to ask the right questions." rather than being stuck or having to pretend. So that's something that I try to use quite often in my management style. Um, and the last thing is talking about the problems. Uh, so I was, I was participating in a big conference in Silicon Valley and uh, spending some time with CEOs of other companies and co-founders. And after two, three days, I had to go on stage and, and I couldn't help myself. I couldn't resist and tell them, look, I've been here for three days. And I really envy you guys because everybody here in Silicon Valley, they have challenges. And in Mimed, we, we do not have challenges. We have big F problems. That's what we have. And we wake up every morning to try and solve them. Now, if it's a challenge, it can grow on you. It's fine. You go to sleep with it at night. You wake up in the morning. But if it's a big problem, you, you, feel, un, you feel unrest. You, you, you're, you're, you have a lot of uneasiness. You have to go and solve it. So that's talking about the problems. And that's something that we cherish here, talking about the problems and then talking about the solutions. That's part of the journey. So these are the three elements. Manage yourself, be authentic about what you know and you don't know, and talk about the problems in order to find the solutions. How do you know when to personally get involved in making that decision? And how do you know when to step, step back and have your team, someone on your team, make a decision? First of all, I often don't know. My often my gut feeling, at least in the early days, was anything, any problem I see, you run to the rescue, you run. If you see a fire, you run with a hose to try to uh, take out the fire. That's your first instinct. And it's fine when you're small. As you grow and bring people that are better than you, and in many instances, the people here are much better than I am or you know the founding team are in multiple aspects, then... It's easier because you know that if you're going to answer the question, you're probably going to get it wrong or not as good as some of the other people. And finding the right balance, I think that's an art. The more you have people that you trust, and trust is something that's gained through time, the more you can you can release. And I'm sure that I error 
sometimes to, to both sides. And this is, I would say, if you ask me this maybe in two, three years, maybe I'm going to have a more calibrated answer. This is still trial and error. As you and your co-founder were taking the idea about how this could be something and trying to actually build it and put the mechanically to put the pieces together about what the platform was. I know that was a years long process, but can you take me through that a little bit? So there's two parts to the solution. Solution part one, well, find a host immune response signature that would somehow distinguish between bacterial and viral infections. Solution part two, if and when you find it, develop an apparatus that can actually measure it where and when it actually matters. That means fast, quick, affordable. Two separate problems, each of which is daunting. Let's talk about the first part. Where do you find this hypothetical host immune signature, these molecules? So there's a, a really known professor from the Hebrew University, uh, Professor Eli Keshe, they had this saying that three, four years on the bench doing experiments can save you up to four hours in Google. So we said, let's do it the other way around. Let's start with Google. So we went out there and looked at everything that people have published and then did some experiments. At that time, we were still not funded. So we took a little bit of loans, took, took a little bit of blood from family and friends, infected them with different bacteria and viruses outside their body, not inside their body, obviously. Uh, they love us, but they do not love us that much. and we failed. One of the things we learned early on, the mere fact that something participates in the immune response doesn't mean it has diagnostic merit. So we deepened the search, more literature survey, more brute force, more bioinformatics, without going too much into the technology itself. And then we at some point were able to identify a few potential candidates, try to go and raise some initial funds, failed miserably. People are telling us, look, what you found is outside the human body, in vitro. It does not mimic what's happening in vivo, inside your body. And therefore, it's not the real thing. What about your kidney filtration, lymphatic communication, and other stuff? So we said, okay, we have to do a real clinical study. But how do you do that without funds? So to the rescue came a few good souls, including Professor Israel Potosman, from Nezai Medical Center, who was willing to join on board for a little bit of equity and a lot of goodwill. And we did a first small-scale clinical study. Some of the molecules died from the journey from outside the body, and some of them survived. And at that point, we became financeable. At that point, we could start scaling the studies. At that point, we went and did a huge clinical study, over 1,002 patients, where we screened the entire human proteome. It's the largest proteomic screening ever to be conducted at the human response to acute infections and we started hitting on targets. We found some of those hypothetical molecules. Um, interesting anecdotes. So we found, for example, one of the first, or maybe the first virally induced protein that is used as part of routine care. In 21st century medicine, we didn't have even one protein of your body that goes up against viruses that is used for diagnosis. We actually identified a lot of its properties. Um, and to that, we added a few others. Um, we gave them names of ice creams because we were afraid somebody's going to steal them. So we had toffee, cherry, pecan, mocha. Every conference room here has a name, a name of another ice cream. So toffee, for example, which is 
a, the professional word for that is trail. It's a protein called trail will shoot up in your bloodstream when you have a viral infection, whether you have a rhinovirus, influenza, or guess what? COVID, COVID-19. It's going to go up in your bloodstream when you have the viral infection. It's going to go down if you have a bacterial infection. Whether you're a three-month-year-old baby or a 93-year-old lady, whether you're a hypochondriac or somebody comes after a week. And so we're able to aggregate and find these different biomarkers and combine them with the right algorithm into signature that we then published the results after four years that was able to do this with an accuracy of over 90%. That was the first four years of the journey trying to solve problem number one. And then we find out it was not good enough. And we got a phone call. We published the results in a reputable uh, journal. And we got a phone call from an interviewer from BBC was telling us, look, guys, this is potentially transformative. Very, very nice. Uh, but I'm very skeptical. I'm skeptical because the field has been plagued with overpromise and underdelivery. It's not enough that you, a bunch of young PhDs and MDs running around, uh, are saying that this works. You need external, not internal, prospective, not retrospective, double-blind studies, not the one that you do peekaboo, uh, that are led by super doctors, not you guys with all due respect, and are published in the Lancet in New England. And most companies and academics don't go through this uh, reproducibility issue. And those that do often fail and spend in the process tens of millions of dollars. Uh, good luck. That's what she told us. And she was absolutely right. What she didn't know that we decided as a team to take the risk about three years before the interview. And we said, let's give the technology to external super doctors across the globe, let them play with it, let them test it. And if it doesn't work, let's do something else with our lives. It's fine, right? Sometimes you fail. And then the data started coming out. So about one year after the interview, we had Professor Louis Bond from Utrecht Medical Center who ran a huge study about 777 children, um, completely double-blinded, study we actually signed an agreement with the hospital that if the results don't come out don't come out well they can publish it whatever happens can kill the company that's a big risk and when we opened the books it was obviously very the tension was high we almost lost a fear to a to a heart attack it was very very uh, not 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 very recommended uh, i would say experience but to make a long story short, the results that we got were very similar to the first study, over 90% by and large sensitivity and specificity. And that got published in the Lancet ID, which is the leading journal in the field. And then we opened the books on another one and another one. So we're running about 10 clinical studies today around the globe, tens of thousands of patients. And at that point, when other people around the globe started getting the same results across different populations, because one of the biggest challenges, will it work? despite the differences that you have between you and me. Different ethnic groups, different age groups, different pathogens, different times from symptoms onset, gender, et cetera, et cetera. And once we start having this real hardcore data, then we knew it's real. At that point, I think we all buried the dream of going for academia and we said, okay, let's make this a life purpose. So that's when we knew we had solution number one, well, we knew we were in the right direction, but that was not good enough either. Now I can go back to your question.
Why? Why, why? why is this not good enough? Because we could only measure this in a in a lab by a PhD, and, and it takes about three to four hours, and turnaround time is about twenty four hours. When I'm coming with my daughters, I want to get the solution here and now. I don't want to wait. So that's, I would say, leads us to solution number two. How did you then set out to address question number two? So the problem was, how do you measure Toffee Chair and Pecan? The actual names are Trail IP10 and good old C-reactive protein. The last one is actually well-known protein. How do you measure them within 15 minutes, one five, in a rapid, easy-to-use, affordable manner? So again, you always resolve to the most simplest solution out there. So we said, let's use off-the-shelf boxes. Uh, we tried to use some off-the-shelf boxes, teamed up with a few companies, uh, spent quite a lot of cash, and again, failed miserably. And the reason was that one of the proteins, particularly the one called TRAIL, the one that goes up in viruses, which is the most important one in the signature, it is in a picogram per ml concentration. Now, let me take you through what picogram per ml means. Picogram is 10 to the power of minus 12. It is the equivalent of having a soccer field or a football field covered with about two kilometers of M&Ms. And then I, I hide a random number between zero and a thousand Skittles. You have to go and count the Skittles. You have 15 minutes, go. That's the problem. Now, go and develop a device that can do that. The eventual solution came from, uh, again, an idea that Kfir had was that we really suck in biochemistry as a human race. It's more like cooking couscous. We don't really understand all the boundary conditions, but we're pretty good in engineering. So the idea was let's take a large machine that costs maybe 200K or 500K that's out there already, devices like those of Abbott and Diasorin and some other and Siemens, and let's miniaturize the device. It leads, it's an engineering problem and not a biochemistry problem. And again, it took in parallel almost six years. At a certain point, DOD stepped in and the European Commission and gave us almost $35 million, no strings attached, just to push this thing forward. Um, and then it started working. Um, so today, we basically have a platform. Uh, we just got it cleared in Europe about two weeks ago, which is a huge milestone for us. We're actually using it right now on on patients. And the platform can measure B versus V, bacterial versus viral infection, in 15 minutes from serum, from blood. Um, and interestingly enough, well, we created the platform because we wanted to own our destiny. We wanted to be able to measure bacterial versus viral infections, but that platform can actually measure any protein in your body. And that, maybe when you come to talk a little bit about what Mimin is planning for the future, we've created these core assets that now you can recycle and use them to solve additional problems. So that's solution number one and solution number two to the first problem we went after. At that probably critical moment when DOD and some of the European agencies said, we see that this you're close and, and with some money, maybe you can get over this hurdle about the miniaturization. What, why was it that they saw that? What was the need that they said, this is significant, we need to help? So I think they saw two needs. Need number one, 
reduction of antibiotics misuse. Because we don't know if it's a bacterial viral infection, we often give antibiotics just in case. Now that really changes across different countries. In the US, there's more overuse. In certain Nordic countries in Europe, there's underuse, which also has a price. Um, but the overuse leads to development of resistant strains of bacteria. Now, why are people interested in this problem? Resistance uh, to antibiotics could basically shake the most fundamental pillar of modern medicine. If you lose potency of antibiotics, you almost lose modern, modern medicine. You cannot treat preterm infants that would die due to a weakened immune response. You cannot treat oncology patients that would die due to parasitic infections. You, it would be very risky to, take your, to have your wisdom tooth pulled out due to the infection or going through a hip replacement. So that's critical. And we're actually going as a human race in the wrong direction. There's a rise of resistant strains of bacteria. We're not creating enough new antibiotics. And so ideas that can help disrupt this equilibrium, this direction that we're going after, is getting a lot of attention. When we started to work on this, we couldn't find a VC that would touch us with a stick, even if our life depended on it, nor a government. But as things progressed, this curse became a blessing because we were much more advanced. This field was deprived from any real resources. And the reason that DOD, the European Commission, and then some very well-regarded VCs from Silicon Valley and, and what have you, the reason they came on board, it was for one single reason, I believe, data. We had the data. We had the technology and hopefully a very good team as well. So, so that was the biggest differentiator. We really had the time to work out the problems and come up with concrete solutions. Second part was that this type of a technology, the Mimit, it's called Mimit Key, the little box, because it opens central laboratory precision at the point of need. This box, you can basically use it to measure or quantify any protein in your body. And I believe DOD, European Commission, they all recognize the potential there. You can use it for cardiology, for oncology, for wellness, for infectious diseases, for inflammation, even for veterinarian purposes. And so it really opens the floodgate for all sorts of tests that are really important and are right now locked in the central lab or require a technician. Suddenly you can mount them on this small box on the Mimit key, and you can bring them to into the workflow. So that was motivation number two. And right now we're working with different partners, both commercial and, and non, non-profit organizations, to see how we can leverage this core technology to bring additional content to where it's actually needed. Aaron, what's new at MIMED? Two things. First of all, uh, we've just got our second generation platform cleared in Europe. Uh, this was an uphill battle for years with a lot of people doing, there was a lot of uh, blood and sweat, particularly blood in our case. There's a lot of blood involved, obviously, uh, which is a huge milestone. It's basically, we call this the zero to one uh, after Peter Thiel's uh, famous uh, book. So we went from zero patients to patient number one and from zero diseases to one disease. It was extremely gratifying, and now the story is shifting from developing a disruptive technology to having impact on patients, and right now teaming up with additional 
uh, entities. Um, so that's one thing that's really big. Uh, obviously working right now also with FDA to get this cleared in, in, in the US. So that's one thing that's new. The second thing that is new is that we're starting to work on additional big problems. And maybe I can give you one example. So another related clinical question, when somebody has a fever, well, one, well, is it a bacterial or viral infection to treat or not to treat? Another one is, well, what are the chances that this patient is going to deteriorate? So you have seemingly similar patients, same background, most of which the infection is not going to be that, um, I would say, severe. But some will, and there's a lot of value known who to send home and who do I admit and even uh, take through to, to the ICU. We've just seen that in the COVID. COVID was a logistic problem. The question is, well, who do I send home in quarantine and who do I admit to the border of the ICU? We've done this quarantine to try to solve this logistic problem and to make sure that we, we do not overwhelm the healthcare system. So what if we had a technology that could tell you that? And guess what? The immune response can actually give you that information. This paradigm shift of looking at the immune response, at the host immune response, rather than trying to detect the bacteria or the virus, gives you this orthogonal information that's complementary to what's out there today. And so we've identified in the last few years um, a set of molecules that have that information. And right now we're working to combine them together with the right algorithms and validate that. We're validating, the, validating this in two ways. Number one, on COVID patients. And we've done remarkable work here. The team has actually volunteered to work in hospitals infected with COVID to actually get access to patient samples. And we got access to thousands of clinical samples of COVID patients. And we're testing it on that. But also, after this pandemic, there's going to be the next pandemic. Or there's going to be many days of peace. And so this value of being able to say severe, non-severe, we call this Mimit alert, has significant value also outside, I would say, days of pandemic. So that's one direction that we're going very assertively. And we have quite a lot of very nice clinical data already around that. Your, your solutions, whether they're for children or adults, COVID or not COVID, they, they can reach millions of people i would think depending on how things work out for you and i know you're right in the throes of working out the details of trying to find out exactly what the data say do you allow yourself at this point to step back sigh and think you know what i originally want to do was help people this could actually help a lot of people are you do you ever get the time to think in those terms at this point or is that for later on absolutely i think this is something very integral in the journey so we've used the first generation product, uh, the one that works in 24 hours on over 15,000 patients. And that is extremely gratifying. Um, I personally had a chance to use it a few times on my children. Uh, so as you can imagine, you get a lot of extra bonus points with your mother-in-law, which is strategic. If you're an entrepreneur and you're going to work very hard and, and not gonna be many, many nights at, at, at home, having the support of your mother-in-law, in my case, Shula is critical, right? So yeah, so that's an anecdote, right? And it really gives a sense of purpose to the families here. And I think we all feel that what we're doing means a lot. It's also, there's a lot of weight on our shoulder. So it's a, it's a type of a bipolar type of an attitude. On one hand, 
it gives a lot of motivation, but it's also a lot of, let's say, a burden. You 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 understand that what you're doing here can have a, a big impact on many patients. When you're at a presentation and you try to describe some of the things you've been describing to me today and, and help people understand what it is about MEMED that is different from any place else, any other work that's being done, uh, sometimes people will come up afterwards and say, thank you, I've understood, and you think, I've done my job. Other times people will come up and say, thank you, I've understood X, but it's not X. You think, oh no, that's not <laughs> what I intended. I'm sure this never happened to you. <laughs> but at that moment, is there any kind of pattern about what kinds of things do people or can people misunderstand because of filters they have in place? And and then how do you help them to get, understand the way you're trying to have them understand it? The story about bacteria versus viral infection, to treat or not to treat, everybody gets it. Every hysterical father and mother on the face of this planet, me included, y- y- you get it. Uh, however, the part of the host response and the fact that you can use the same type of paradigm the same type of technology, whether it's the hardware, whether it's the machine learning, whether it's the biochemistry, and where you can take that, that's well less, less well understood because it's more abstract. So then people say, well, okay, great, but what does that mean? And really, there's a lot of opportunities here. I gave you one example of one thing, the meme alert that we're working on, but there's a bunch of additional projects and products that we're working on that hopefully as we are able to share more and more and things become more more advanced i think it's going to be clear for, for people to understand where we're getting but basically what we want to be in five years from now we want to be the host response company if you have a problem where the ho- listening to the host immune response can give you the answer we want to be on top of that now not all questions a require the host response or the host immune response. But it turns out there's a, that there's a subset of questions that listening to the immune response or to the host response is the right way to go and solve that question. And, and that's where we're at. And that's more abstract. That's harder. I think people don't always get that. When you give that answer you just gave to me uh, as a clarification, what kind of response do you get then? I think people... People understand this. Uh, they definitely get the B versus V, the bacteria versus viral infection to treat or not treat. Everybody understands that because we all experience this a few times every year, whether it's ourselves or our children or our parents. On the host response, being a host response company, that's a more abstract idea. And I think that takes more time to, to comprehend. But when understanding what we did for, for B versus V, for bacteria versus viral infection, if you start imagining, well, if you use the same paradigm, the same capabilities, the same technology for other problems, what else can you do? Then the imagination starts to come into play and people people do get it. Yeah. At the very beginning, you were talking to me, I believe, about what I would call democratization of medicine. When, when Your very starting ideas had to do with trying to make things that were accessible to lots of people and was not a very expensive specialized piece of equipment. Does that? It sounds like that idea continues today, even after all this progress. That w- one of the things that's really interesting to you is to be able to help people in lots of different places in lots of different ways. Is that still where you started from? Is that still where you are? One of the most important ways that we measure ourselves is patient impact. We actually have two met- 
two, two, two KPIs, patient impact and return on investment. And it's a blended average of the two. And patient impact is also captured by the number of lives that you've been able to touch. And it's also very relevant to the problem we're going after, or at least the first one, because bacteria and viruses, they don't really care about boundaries or borders. They don't really have a passport, as we've seen with COVID, right? So whatever you have today, whatever resistance strain that you have today in San Francisco, tomorrow you have in New York, and the day after that in Tel Aviv, and after that in Munich. So, so you really have to look at this from a global perspective and see how can my solution be deployed across different settings, countries. No single entity, by the way, can do it by itself. So that's why we're teaming up with different commercial and nonprofit organizations to really bring this technology to as many patients as possible. The most important part, and maybe even more important than the technology, is the people. Is the people aspect. At the end of the day, doesn't matter how fancy the problem is, doesn't matter how fancy the technology is, you need people to actually execute and make it happen. And so I think the reason that we've been able to reach the point that we've reached, not to say that we don't have a lot more to go, is because of people that are waking up here every morning and literally giving their, as I said, blood, sweat, and mostly blood, and, and literally blood, and there's a lot of blood that we've ga- given in the process uh, to do some of the experiments. Um, I think that's probably our secret weapon. Uh, this I would call this an anti-disciplinary team. We don't care about disciplines. There's actually a jungle of disciplines here. We have doctors, molecular biologists, machine learning folks, system engineering, commercial folks. It's not about the it's not about the discipline. It's about solving the problems. So it's this anti-disciplinary team that works together that's actually the secret sauce. Thanks for speaking with me today, Aaron. Thank you very much for having me here. As Aaron talked with me about leadership, I heard him describe two qualities that shape his work as a biotech co-founder and CEO, attributes I've heard from several BioBoss guests. One is, not surprisingly, Aaron's dedication to rigorous data-driven science. The second quality is Aran's willingness to approach challenges as a game, open to problem solving through imagination and play. As Aran said to me, if you think about yourself too seriously, I think it limits your ability to imagine. Playfulness is a characteristic we often associate with artists and poets rather than biotech leaders. But if we think about the history of science, pairing scientific rigor and creative freedom makes a lot of sense. Many of us remember reading about Albert Einstein's thought experiments where he attempted to visualize a mental model within an imaginary scenario. As Einstein wrote to a friend, combinatory play seems to be the essential feature in productive thought. Iran went on to make a related point when he said to me, an important thing I've learned is to be authentic about what you know, be also very authentic about what you don't know. In science, you're bound not to know everything, and when you're an entrepreneur, you definitely don't know everything. That leads to what Iran called his secret weapon, the anti-disciplinary team he's built at MeMed. Iran says, we don't care about disciplines. There's actually a jungle of disciplines here. It's not about the disciplines. It's about working to solve the problems. And with problems like the ones MeMed is working on, 
including helping doctors predict the severity of the coronavirus and other diseases, that's a good thing. I'm John Simboli. You're listening to BioBoss.